I was just reading this morning in Ezra chapter one, where Cyrus was inviting all of the exiles in Babylon, if they wanted to, to go back to Jerusalem and uh, begin to worship the Lord again and rebuild the temple. And it's amazing uh, how God used that pagan king uh, for his people and for his purposes. And that's a good thing to remind ourselves as we're coming up on an election that we don't, don't know what's going to happen or what are the repercussions going to be. God is still going to be on his throne. Still going to be on his throne. And he was when Cyrus was the emperor of Persia. And he stirred in his heart to have this happen. And then it says in verse 5, I believe, Ezra 1, that God, God stirred in the people's hearts, in the Levites' hearts, in the priests' hearts, to go back to Jerusalem and to begin to worship the Lord God again the way he had called them to. And, you know, all of us have different gifts that God has given us as his followers to serve him with. Some of you might have the gift of teaching. Some of you might have the gift of serving. Some of you might have the gift of encouraging. And we could go down through 1 Corinthians 12 and talk about the many gifts that God gives his people. But this one thing that is a, is a gift, but also a calling on everyone. So it might be a gift for some, but it's a calling for all who follow Jesus. And that is to proclaim the name of Jesus to all. Now, the people who have the gift might be better at it than some of the rest of us. But all of us are called to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And uh, so this morning, we have someone here from uh, the Crescent Project. He is a regional coordinator. He lives in um, uh, North Carolina. And uh, he is working on his uh, Ph.D. in Islamic studies, uh, has spent a year uh, serving the Lord in Turkey along with his family, has uh, two boys here with him this morning. He and his wife have uh, four children. And I want to invite Thomas uh, Messick to come up to the platform. And would you give him a nice keystone welcome as a uh, welcome home? And uh, so this morning he's going to share about the world of Islam and kind of hopefully stir our hearts a little bit more uh, for that world that God loves so much. Let me pray for you, brother. Father, uh, thank you for Thomas and uh, thank you for bringing him to us. Mm. Speak through him. Uh, May he feel great freedom that he's among friends. And I pray that the Holy Spirit and the word of God um, would be the vehicle um, by which he speaks this morning. I pray that you would be glorified. We'd be challenged and encouraged for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to be here this morning. And thanks for inviting me to come and spend some time with you. You may have already noticed that I am not from here. I am from the South. And uh, I taught English in Turkey for about a year. And something I should have told my students, I, I should have told them, you know, if you, go, if you go to America, now the type of English I'm a teaching you can only be a spoken down yonder below D.C. Uh, but uh, they figured it out when they came here, uh, hopefully. Uh, I spoke in Massachusetts a couple of years ago. And after I spoke, this dear lady came up to me after the service and she said, I thought all Southern people spoke real slow, but you spoke, you, you speak very fast. And I was thinking, what should, what should I say? Why, thank you. I'm here to talk to you about Muslims and about Islam. And 
this is going to be easy for you guys because all Muslims want to go to paradise. And I'd say for you guys, that's going to be pretty easy, right? Because you're already living there. Um, so you're going, to, you're going to be able to pick up on this, no problem. Uh, the first thing I want you to do this morning is I want you to separate out in your mind Islam as an ideology and Muslims as a people. Uh, and I know this, is, this could be difficult in some ways, but this morning I'm going to give more of a pastoral plea from Matthew chapter 9 to love Muslims, have compassion on Muslims, and engage them with the gospel. Tonight I'm going to talk a little bit more about the ideology of Islam, some of those beliefs and practices. Uh, with that said, of course, you know, the ideology of Islam and Muslims are always intertwined uh, together. So there's a term that is used called uh, Islam, uh, Islamophobia. I don't know if you've ever heard of this term here. But, you know, the academics use it, the media use it. And a lot of times it's used as, uh, you know, the term phobia means that one has an irrational fear of something or someone. In this case, a fear of Islam or Muslims. And as an ideology, I would say... There could be good reason to fear Islam in the sense of, I, you know, I don't like what they have to say. Uh, but maybe a better term to use would be Muslim phobia, right? Uh, and this morning, I, I want you to separate these things out. And I want you to be thinking, I don't want you to fear Muslims. I don't want you to fear uh, them. And so I want your mind to go to the people called Muslims, to the uh, people who live here in Can- Lancaster County. The businessmen, the business uh, women, the Uber drivers, the grandfathers, the grandmothers, the moms, the dads, the, the Amirs, and the Muhammads, the Aishas, and the Alifs. We must see God, I mean, excuse me, see Muslims as God sees them and cast out, uh, pray for him to cast out laborers into the harvest when he sends you you should go as well. So we're going to be uh, looking at our Bibles here at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. So if you want to turn there, you can uh, read this here on the screen. Matthew 9, starting here in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus was on the move. He was moving from city to city, going from place to place. And our God is not idle. He's not just sitting around. No, he is involved in history. He is on the move. And uh, I love the way verse 31 of chapter 9 talks about Jesus' ministry. It says that his fame was spreading. That's in the ESL. His fame was spreading. It's good to remember this morning that Jesus wants to be famous among all people, including Muslim people. And when you read the Psalms, this is very apparent. What does it say? Uh, Many of the Psalms says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And so we are to be spreading the fame of Jesus 
Christ, this wonderful news that he loves humanity, even though humanity is sinful, and he died and he rose from the dead. That's the gospel, and Muslims need to hear that as well. We are to be on the move spreading his fame. Now, I would love to tell you that the history of Christian-Muslim relationships and, and, the, and the church uh, engaging Muslims has been a beautiful um, you know, history of them spreading Jesus' fame among the Muslims. But unfortunately, that's just not, that's just not the case uh, at all. But there are a couple of really cool examples that I want you to know about of Christians engaging Muslims and loving Muslims with the, uh, with the gospel. One of those is John of Damascus. You see him up here. Uh, John's name, as is implied, he was from Damascus, which was uh, in modern-day Syria, and he was born around 675 A.D. That was about 40 years after the Arab conquest. And so uh, Muhammad himself, uh, who founded Islam, he wasn't able to get Islam out of Arabia, but within 35 years, the first four Muslim leaders called caliphs ended up spreading Islam. You can see there on the screen all the way into North Africa and to Mesopotamia. Uh, and Damascus, where John lived, just happened to be one of the stepping stones uh, along the way. Well, John, he was the chief financial officer in the Umayyad Empire during the reign of Abdu al-Malek, and his position probably was inherited from his father. Uh, and so uh, he worked in a Muslim empire, um, and this empire that I just mentioned lasted from 661 to 750. Well, John wrote two works, two things to help Christians understand who Muslims were, and to share uh, the gospel with them. One was called the heresy of the Ishmaelites. And by the way, sometimes Muslims are referred to back in the day as Ishmaelites because they come to be from Abraham's child Ishmael. Uh, and the other one is disputation of the Christian and the Sar- Saracen. Saracen was another old word uh, for Muslims. So there's John of Damascus, very important in history uh, there. And then there's a... a uh, some things that uh, he particularly wrote about, and according to jo- Dr. Janasik, uh, he dealt with three main objections from Muslims. And by the way, some things never change, right? So what are those three obje- objections? One, belief in the Trinity. Two, belief in the deity of Christ. Three, belief that Jesus really died on the cross. And many Muslims still believe this. Uh, many Muslims uh, don't understand these core Christian doctors, doctrines, excuse me. And um, uh, they, some people, uh, Muslims, even believe that we worship three gods and that the Trinity is composed of God the Father, uh, Mary, and Jesus. And for Muslims, this is really hard, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, because they believe in the oneness of God. And so as Christians, we believe that God is one person and one, excuse me, three persons and one being. For Muslims, they believe that God is one being and one person. They call that tawhid. Uh, It's the oneness of God. It's very essential uh, for Muslims. Uh, Additionally, Muslims deny that Jesus is God. Uh, even though he is very important in Islam. He uh, is a great prophet, this, that, and the other. Um, But for a Muslim, they cannot comprehend God coming to earth and becoming a human being. 
God is transcendent. He is beyond this world. And if you claim that Jesus came, excuse me, God, yeah, you know, Jesus came to earth and became God, then you've committed an unforgivable sin called shirk. I know I'm giving you a lot of new words, but some things to kind of think about and uh, look out, look up later. Lastly, Muslims deny that Jesus died on the cross. And so in their mind, God would never allow his prophet to die. He would protect them. Uh, and there's various reasons that Muslims give for, you know, why do Christians think that he died on the cross, this, that, and the other. But you have to remember, you know, if we're going to the Bible and we're talking to a Muslim about what we believe, well, Muslims believe that the Bible has been corrupted. And so the scripture that you may be using, they may be looking or thinking at least, well, that, that, that's been corrupted. It's been changed. That's why it says uh, that Jesus died on the cross. Here's another guy, Raymond Lowell. Anybody ever heard of him? I didn't think so. <laughs> That's why I wanted to tell you. Raymond, Raymond Lowell, uh, he uh, lived in the 13th century, uh, 500 years uh, later. And Raymond Lowell uh, was from modern-day Spain, an area there. And in his day, the Crusades had just happened. You probably know about those. And the Crusades had, uh, as we can imagine, there were probably weren't a lot of Christians loving Muslims during the crusade uh, period. And anyone who is familiar with the crusades would be sickened to understand, to, to know that uh, people were going out and killing people in the name of Jesus Christ, even though the crusades were actually a response to that Arab conquest, right? So they were responding to losing Christian lands. Uh, and with such uh, things going on, Lowell chose to go against the tide, against what society was telling him, against what the church was telling him. And he said, I'm going to love Muslims. I'm going to engage them uh, with the gospel. And so in preparation, he just had a little short uh, period of preparation. He said, I'm going to spend the next nine years learning Arabic. Nine years. Can you imagine? That's what it's going to take, though. Uh, He dedicated his life to persuade Muslims of the truth of the gospel, and he had some success in this. Uh, He went to northern Africa and uh, had a small group of followers there. He went on uh, several trips. The first two trips, he was banished. He wasn't allowed to come back. You know what that means? He was probably probably doing a pretty good job, right? And so then the third time he went, he was older, and he went out into the public market and he proclaimed uh, the Lord uh, Jesus and he was stoned uh, to death on June the 30th, 1315. So are there some hard places to go in the Muslim world? Yes, there are some hard places to go. But Some of us are called to go and to spread the fame of Jesus in those places. And so I want you to pray for God to cast out laborers into the harvest among Muslims. And when he sends you, go. What's another one uh, that sent back in history that who shared, uh, interacted with Muslims? Martin Luther, believe it or not. Has anybody heard of Martin Luther? If not, we need to talk to the pastor. But uh, uh, he wrote a track uh, that's called this. Uh, it's called The Track on the Religious Custom of the, Tr- of the Turks. Or actually, I should say, maybe he didn't write it, but he published it and wrote the introduction to it. And this track was to help Christians to understand who Muslims are. What, why did they do the things they did? Why did they pray the way they did? How did they think about God? And uh, he actually had uh, the Quran 
published in Germany, German, the German language. He felt like this was very important. Um, and we need more Christians uh, like Martin Luther who are willing to t- invest the time to understand who Muslims are, to research their beliefs, and to go out and tell uh, Christians about what they believe in published literature. Another one uh, back in history here more recently is Samuel Zwamer. Samuel Zwamer uh, was a Christian scholar who traveled through Arabia. Uh, he's uh, from America here, and he wrote a lot, a lot of books. I encourage you to get online. You can probably get a lot of these for free these days and uh, really just mobilize the church to go to the Muslim world. More recently, someone you may have heard of is Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi uh, was uh, really a, a notable apologist and just loved Muslims. Why? Because he grew up Muslim. He grew up in a Pakistani, uh, well, his, his, his parents were American, but they coming from Pakistan descent. And his dad was in the U.S. Navy. He grew up here in, in, in Virginia. And uh, he came to Christ under the ministry of a guy named David Wood. And then he worked for RZIM. Unfortunately, he ended up getting cancer and, and, and dying pretty, pretty young. He was only uh, born a couple of weeks after I was born. But he wrote two books. Uh, and uh, well, actually three, but these I'm going to point out to you, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. So if this interests you at all, read this book. And then if you really like to study the ideas, I would suggest the other book, No God, But God. But one of the things Nabil used to say before he passed away is that you, we are the God-chosen generation to reach Muslims. God has chosen us, and you'll find out more why that is, because God has given us an amazing opportunity. More Christians are going to the Muslim world than ever before, but there are still villages and towns of 150,000 people, 400,000 people, million people who have little to no gospel witness. And we need more Raymond Lulls. We need more Samuel Zwamers. We need more Nabil Qureshis. And God has placed us at this point in history to be able to engage Muslims with the gospel. Well, we need to see Muslims like God sees them and pray for God to cast out laborers. And when he calls you, go. What's unique about the American church is that not only are we to go, but actually Muslims are coming to us. They're coming to us right here in our back door. And ever since the 1800s, Islam dates in America, uh, there were some slaves who came over who were of Muslim descent. And uh, then in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, uh, there were waves of immigration of Muslims coming in. Uh, You can see one of these mosques up here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It's kind of a famous mosque. It's not the oldest, but uh, it has claims to fame of being one of the oldest. And... Um, also, uh, there's a couple other, uh, other ones on there. But before 1965, Islam was very associated with the African-American community. And there was a very important Islamic cult, I guess we could say, uh, called the Nation of Islam. And it had a very, and still does, have a very radical ideology. It's actually a very racist organization. Uh, and it believes that all white people are white devils. Uh, very, very interesting. But there is a guy that's pretty famous you may have heard of. His name was uh, Malcolm Little or Malcolm X. Uh, he ended up abandoning this cult later in his life and figured out, hey, uh, after he went on pilgrimage to Mecca as a, as a good Muslim, he looked around. He's like, wait a minute. 
Everybody's not uh, uh, an African-American here. There are people from all over the place who claim to be Muslims. And so he, he ended up uh, turning away from, uh, from this uh, nation of Islam. And in 1975, uh, Wallace Muhammad, uh, in, who uh, ended up leading the nation of Islam to embrace Sunni Islam. And so why am I telling you this? Because if you talk to African-Americans who are Muslims, a lot of times they started in one of these radical cults and then they converted over to, to uh, traditional uh, Islam. So it's, I know a, a good friend of mine, her dad is still Sunni Muslim, but he first came to Islam uh, through the nation of Islam. So what happened in 1965 is Lyndon, uh, Lyndon Johnson, the president, signed something called the Heart Seller Act. And immigration opened the, uh, it opened the door for immigration in America and Muslims started coming in uh, by the waves. Uh, and uh, at that time, it became very educated Muslims, people who, uh, who are business people. And they started building institutions that we now have in America uh, and that are still up and going, such as the Muslim Student Association, which you're going to find on almost every university campus, just like you would something like Crew. Uh, and it's even on the campus of Millersville, Millersville University and Elizabethtown College. There may be some other colleges around here, but I did find out that they are present there. There's another organization they founded called ISNA. ISNA is called the, uh, stands for the Islamic Society of North America. That's the largest society of Muslims in, in America. Uh, just some numbers for you. Right now, uh, we know that there's about 3.3 million Muslims in America. That is projected to grow to 8.1 million Muslims by 2050. And Muslims will then at that time be the second largest religious group in the United States. In case you're counting, that's only 30 years, right? It's only 30 years and this trend is going to continue. From 2000 to 2012, approximately 900 mosques were built in the United States. Uh, The town I grew up is about the size of Lancaster, And I don't remember there being a mosque growing up. I don't remember Muslims being around. But guess what? There's a mosque there now. There are Muslims there now. When I go to Walmart, when I go to these different places. Uh, And uh, according to Global Gates, who has this little diagram that you're probably not going to be able to see, 44% of all the unreached people groups in the United uh, States are Muslim. Uh, And they have some of those listed on here. The Turks, Wolof, Pakistani, Arabs, Kurds. Kurds. Uh, and so what is an unreached people group? Well, Global Gates defines it this way, if I can get that here. Okay. They define it as this. An unreached people group is an ethno-linguistic group that is less than 2% evangelical. In practical terms, an unreached people group is lacking access to the gospel because of a lack of churches or Christians among them who can clearly communicate the message. While there are many groups of people in areas of the world that are more and more unchurched, there remains a substantial list of people who have barely had the opportunity to hear the message in the first place. So many of those people who have never heard the gospel are Muslim people, and they're living right here in America. What about Lancaster County? Has anybody ever met any Muslims in Lancaster County? Yeah? Anybody? No? No. Well, if anybody has, they're not going to admit to it right now. 
Um, here are a couple of mosques in your area. There are at least three active mosques that I could found, find in the area. You have two in Lancaster, United Islamic Association, and then another one called the Islamic Community Center of Lancaster. There are some of the addresses there. And then in Leola, uh, there is a Turkish mosque. It's kind of hard to see, but they call it the Red Rose Foundation. And so there's, there's opportunity right here in your area to reach out to Muslims and to some of these people who have never heard the gospel. When you sell a house, sometimes the buyer has to hire a inspector to check everything out. Well, let's say we have a young couple and they're selling a house and they think everything's okay. And then the buyer hires an inspector and then they find mold in the house. And they come to the seller and the seller's shocked. They're like, what do you mean? There's not mold here. And we're not going to fix the problem. And so the buyer then says, well, I'm not buying the house. And as the buyer is walking away, what does he say to the seller? Well, at least now, legally, you have to report that problem to the next potential buyer. Friends, today, you may not have known that there are Muslims living right in your midst, that they are living as your neighbors. But let this serve, this presentation serve as a witness before God that we have a responsibility, you have a responsibility before God to engage these people called Muslims with the gospel. What an awesome opportunity that God has given us. The landscape of America is changing. Lancaster County is changing. And make no mistake, God has sovereignly brought these people right here to you. As it says here in verse 38, it says that This is his harvest, God's harvest, the Lord of the harvest. Acts chapter 7, 26 through 27 reminds us that God is in absolute sovereign control of the movement and the migration of people. It said, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. What does Jesus say? He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also. God has brought Muslims to your doorstep and global partners couldn't even imagine how do we even reach these people, but God has brought them here. Do you want to go to Afghanistan in the middle of a war? Do you want to go to Syria in the middle of the war? You have Afghanis and Syrians living in Lancaster County. That's according to Church World Services. They're living here. And when we see this harvest of Muslims who are living among us, that ought to cause us to react like Jesus. Well, how did Jesus react? What does it say here in verse 36? He had compassion for them. Compassion is heartfelt mercy and grace. Why did Jesus have so much compassion? Compassion. Well, yeah, he's God. <laughs> But also it says here in the text, because they were harassed. They were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If you're a mom or a a, a grandmom or grandma, I don't know what they say up here. But uh, if your child or your grandchild is running and then they fall and they hurt their knee, even after you told them not to do something and they got got hurt, guess what you're going to do? You're going to have compassion on them, aren't you? You're going, to have, you're going to show them mercy. You're going to show them grace. And Christ is calling you to have that kind of compassion and that kind of grace to Muslims. 
According to a 2015 article in PBS uh, NewsHour here, uh, Farhan al-Qadri and his family moved to Lancaster from Syria. You may meet this man. This man could be listening right now. We don't know. Um, and it wasn't his choice to move here. He didn't, he didn't necessarily want to come to Lancaster from Syria. He had to because there's a huge war there. And he says this in the article. He says, in Syria, it's very bad. Lots of fighting. I've heard this story over and over again from Syrians in North Carolina. That is, it's, it's a horrible situation to be forced out of your home due to violence. Muslims are harassed by war, authoritarian governments, harsh rules based upon Sharia law, the inability to leave Islam, living in shame and a general lack of freedom. And of course, an inaccessibility to the Bible and churches. The Uyghur people in China right now are being put in camps to be indoctrinated. That's another example. Christ your Lord wants you to have compassion on these people who are made in the image of God. First John says that this way, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. There may be several of, of us here who struggle in having compassion on Muslims. Everywhere I go, I have a few. I've had, I was telling uh, Pastor Keith that I have a, uh, I've had people stand up and leave when I, I share about compassion to Muslims, uh, particularly people from a mil- military background. Uh, but there may be other reasons. You may just, maybe the fear of the unknown of who are Muslims or threatened about uh, what they're bringing uh, to our society. And I think there's good reason for that. I would agree with that. I mean, if you think about the history of uh, America's engagement with the Muslim world, there's been a lot of conflict, right? A lot of conflict. We got 1979 Iranian revolution and the American hostages. Anybody remember that? Yeah, that was back there. Uh, 1993, bombing of the World Trade Center. That was the first attempt. Not 2001, uh, terrorist attacks. That one actually went through. 2001, war with Afghanistan and the Taliban. Uh, 2003, Iraq war. Then there's Al-Qaeda. Then there's bin Laden. Then there's Boko Haram. And then there's the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine and Hamas. Then there's the Syrian war. And then there's ISIS. And then there's what's next. This is all going to continue. This stuff is going to keep happening over and over and over again. On April 18, 2007, in the city of Malatya, Turkey, there were three Protestant church leaders who were brutally murdered by five teenage uh, Muslims. Nejati Aydin, Tilman Geski, and Uar Yüksel. In a shocking front page article... Uh, Miss Geski, the widow of, of one of these men, publicly forgave the killers and echoed Jesus' words that said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And uh, Miss Geski could have responded to this bad news and, uh, in a different way. She could have been showed animosity. She could have been very upset, right? But she showed them compassion, And I wonder how many Turkish Muslims in that moment, on that day, when they read that, understood what grace is or was for the first time ever. In Christ, God gives us what we deserve 
no, excuse me, doesn't give us what we deserve. But in Islam, God gives you what you deserve. If you don't do good enough, if you haven't earned enough good things in your life, you're going to get what you deserve. But in Christianity, Christ doesn't give us what he deserves, but he's still just because he punished Jesus in our place as our substitute. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. And like Miss Geske, this widow, we have a choice and how we view things, how we view Muslims, how we view all these conflicts that have been happening. We can view them as Christ views them, as God views them, or we can view them another way. We must see Muslims as God sees Muslims. And instead of seeing all these conflicts as bad things, what are some of the good things that have happened? Well, let's think about it. How many Syrians have come to faith in Christ and been baptized because they left Syria and came into Europe and came into America and they got to hear the good good news of Jesus and now they're following Jesus. That's a good thing, right? Um, Think about uh, how many Syrians who have looked at the form of Islam that ISIS has really uh, been a fan of and said, is this what Islam is? I I don't want that. What about the Iranian Revolution? How many Iranians do we have in the United States now because of the Iranian Revolution who are freely worshiping in church right now who get to hear the gospel? They didn't want what the Iranian government had to give them. And so God is using these things for good. And Muslims are coming to faith in Christ everywhere. I just heard a story uh, just the other day of uh, (laughs) Muslims are uh, actually two stories now of Muslims just being like, "I I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about the Bible. And uh, Muslims trusting in in Christ. More Muslims are coming to faith in Christ than than, uh, they have in a a very long time. And Jesus looked at these crowds and he said, okay, we got all this harvest out here, but we got a problem. Because there's not enough people. There's not enough laborers. We have this huge crop of souls who need someone to go out and do the reaping. Any farmers? Anybody been in farming? Hard job. I'm not really a farmer, but I did some farming growing up a little bit, you know, because I got paid. And um, uh, one thing you never wanted to do was pick up hay. I'm telling you, that was a hard job. And they use these transfer trailers. And I I, I had to get on the back of the trailer a couple of times. And, man, it's it's just horrible. You're talking about wearing your mask. You wanted to wear a respirator up on that thing. I mean, you couldn't breathe. But one thing I noticed is that when there was a whole lot of people helping get up the hay, guess what? It went a whole lot faster. And that's the same way it is. That's what Jesus is saying. We got a lot of work to do. We need more laborers to go out into the harvest field. Now, some of you are already grasping onto your chairs. You know, like, wait a minute, is this the time when the the speaker is going to ask me to go and be a global worker and, and, and leave everything that I have here in America and go somewhere else? No, you got a few more minutes for that. So it's okay. No, but what's amazing here in this passage, what does God ask? What does Jesus ask? He says that you need to pray. You need to pray. He didn't, he saw this great need. He was pointing this out to his disciples, but instead of telling his disciples, hey, get up and go, go do the work. He says, no, pray. Pray right now that God, the Lord of the harvest would cast out laborers into the harvest field. And he was teaching his disciples a lesson. This is Way too big of a task for you disciples. You can't do it all. And the same is true for us. We can't do it all. The Muslim world is almost a quarter of the earth population and growing. 
We can't do it all. But what we can do, we can pray. We can go to the Lord of the harvest. And this word for prayer here is is simply passionately going to God and asking him to move. Uh, Paul used it in 2 Corinthians 5.20 when he said, I am, we implore you, we ask you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Today, if your heart has been pricked in any way for, to have compassion for the Muslim people, I want to ask you to pray, to commit to pray for them. And uh, there's a couple of resources out there. You can get the 30 days of prayer. Uh, you can get that online as a PDF or they can mail you a little book. Um, also, another thing you can do is Start meeting on a regular basis with other believers here at the church or in the community to pray for Muslims. Uh, You may want to adopt a particular uh, people group like the Kurds or the Turks. Uh, Or something else that I do, it's kind of weird, but uh, I get on Google Street View and then I go into a Muslim country that that allows this, Turkey allows it, and then I just go down the sidewalk on Muslim Street View. And I see all the people there. Look at that picture right there. There's a boy holding a Quran outside of a mosque in a neighborhood that I've been to, has that boy or will that boy ever hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will anybody ever step foot there to tell him? That's how we can pray uh, for Muslims. And as you pray, I've been using the words cast out, but here in the text it, it uses the word send out, that God would send out his labors into the harvest. But notice in verse chapter 10, verse 1, the word cast out... Uh, cast out demons that, that Jesus is talking about with his disciples. It's the same word used in our text for send out. God doesn't just want you to pray that he would send out laborers. He wants you to, he wants you to pray that he would cast them out. And there's an urgency about this and an abruptness uh, to this of casting out these laborers into the harvest. It's like the farmer who knows that the, the, the whole thing is, the whole uh, crop is going to spoil unless we get out there and do something quickly. We need this, we, it's time to reap. And so the Lord wants you to pray, to plead with him for the Muslim world that they would come to him and that there would be uh, labors cast out among them. And I think about my own life and I think, well, that's kind of what God did with me, you know. 2010, the Lord radically changed our life. I was planning on going up to somewhere like Pennsylvania where all the unbelievers live and planting a church. Okay, sorry guys. But no, really, Northeast. I was, I was thinking about the Northeast. And then God radically changed, changed our plan and sent us into the Muslim world. And my life has never been the same then. You think I had Muslims on my agenda? You think I was growing up learning about Muslim history and learning Arabic and all this stuff? I wasn't learning about that stuff. That was nowhere on my agenda. I wasn't planning on going overseas. I had four little babies. This one sitting here on the right-hand side in the gray shirt, he was just eight months old when we went to this Muslim country. And so when we went, we didn't primarily go because we had this deep love and compassion for Muslims because we had been praying for them and everything like that. No, we went because that's where God told us to go. That's where he cast us out to go. And by this time in our lives, we had learned you can't say no to God. It just doesn't work. We were uh, moved into an inner city, low-income African-American neighborhood in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, I didn't want to move there, but, I mean, we couldn't afford anything else. And I was like, I tell you what, Lord, we'll go here as long as you don't send us into an apartment by the park. Because by the park is where the people get killed. That's where the gang members hang out. What do you think God did? Threw me down there by the park. Had a 15-year-old shot in our backyard. But you know what? God blessed us. 
We saw people come to faith in Christ left and right. And so when it came to God's calling on our life to go into the Muslim world, I knew better. We knew better. Who am I to say no to the king? I have this on my desktop to be reminded of why I'm doing what I'm doing on a daily basis because I'm ready to quit about every week. But Oswald Chambers, he says this, he wrote a a devotional call, uh, Utmost for His Highest, this is in that. He says this, we have no right to decide where we should be placed or to have preconceived ideas as to what God is preparing us to do. God engineers everything and whatever he pla- wherever he places us, our one supreme goal ought to be to pour out our lives in wholehearted devotion to him in that particular work. What did God tell the prophet Jeremiah? He said, do not say, I am only a youth. To whom I send you, you shall go. What I tell you to speak, you shall speak. What is God speaking to you about right now? What is he telling you? What is he commanding you to do? I know one thing he wants you to do. He wants you to pray that laborers would be cast out into the Muslim world. Will you commit to pray? And hopefully you've agreed because this is kind of a bait and switch kind of thing, but Jesus did this, not me. Because over here in chapter 10, you know what happens? He told, he told the disciples to pray, right? And the next thing you know, he sends them. He sends them all. <laughs> he sends them all out into the harvest. And so they all start preparing to go and, uh, out into the harvest. And they became the laborers that they prayed for to be cast out. And such may become of some of you. And I pray that it will. I've been equipping churches long enough to realize not everybody here is going to necessarily be burdened for Muslims or or what I'm saying right now, but I know some of you will be because I've already been praying to the Lord of the harvest. And I know that there's some prayer warriors in here that are going to join me in praying for those in this church and in this community to go out into the Muslim world to tell them about Jesus and not just the Muslim world, but also Lancaster County. Today, if God is calling you to work among Muslims, lay down your life at his feet. Stop saying no. It's not going to work. Do what he tells you to do. For some of you, it may be you just need to start working around here, start in Lancaster County, and, and, and start doing some outreach here in your area. Uh, we have a little group here. What we've done, and I was telling Pastor Keith, I think it's a great idea. Do we know where Muslims are in Lancaster County? Do we know where they live? Do we know where they work? Probably not. So well, the first step you need to do is, one, pray. And then two, get together a little uh, group of people who are willing to go out into the community and do something called ethnographic research. That sounds like a big word, but it's not. All you got to do is go out and just see where people are. Go to the convenience stores you wouldn't normally go to. In North Carolina, it's the one that has bars on the windows. It's probably owned by a Muslim. Tobacco and vape shops. Hey, Tobacco and vape shops, anybody, anybody vaping? No, I'm just kidding, don't raise your hand. No, but really, I don't, I don't vape and I don't, I, don't, I don't use tobacco, but you know what? I found that every tobacco and vape shop in my area is owned by Yemeni people. They're all from Yemen, every single one of them. 
And so if you had a group of people who would go out into the community, then you could start putting, uh, developing a little map and saying, okay, I met Muhammad here, I met Amir here, I met Aisha here. And then you can start strategizing together how to reach them. And then after that, you may find there's some people who need to learn English or they have some other need. And what we found is some people need to learn English. And so we started a little ESL class. And we've been doing that, having an Iranian lady coming, been able to minister to her. And then we have uh, a lot more Hispanic people, but that's kind of our area. And um, whatever God calls you to do, just do what he tells you to do. But you've got to start, you've got to start somewhere. And uh, for those who are going to be uh, engaging with Muslims on a regular basis, I encourage you to do what Jesus did. And that's compare and contrast belief systems with, with Muslims. Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 32, Jesus says three times, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In this case, Jesus is comparing a false ideology or false teaching with the true teaching of the Old Testament. And likewise, when we talk with Muslims, we need to compare and contrast different beliefs. Crescent Project has produced some excellent material for this called the Bridges Study. You can do it in six weeks. Uh, you can do it in six hours, theoretically. And I'd encourage you guys to go through this study together to understand a little bit more about Muslims and how you can engage them with the gospel. With that said, just in our final time here, uh, we can talk a little bit about salvation in Islam and Christianity and how we can compare those two. And so when we think about salvation in Islam, um, you know, Muslims acknowledge sin. People have problems, right? There's, there's some kind of reason for all these bad traits with anger and all this stuff. Uh, and so the question is, well, how do you stop that? How do you stop being bad? How do you be good? And uh, sin in the Quran is primarily about being misguided. You've just got the wrong information. You, you're not listening to the right guidance. You need the right guidance, the Muslim would tell us, to listen to the Quran, to listen to what Muhammad has to say. And for this reason, it's possible for any human to be able to follow that guidance and to deliver themselves from their own badness. So in other words, you don't really need a savior to get into paradise. You can actually do this yourself. And there's no savior that's going to come to help you do that because Allah is afar. He's transcendent and he's helping you by guiding you through the Quran and through uh, Muhammad and what he taught. Um, Whereas in uh, Christianity, it's very different. Jesus says, all you who are heavy laden and who who labor, come to me and I'll give you rest. In Christianity, people are made pure, but they fail into sin after the fact, right? Sin has messed up the created world, including people. And though people still reflect the image of God, they are depraved and marred by sin. Uh, And we can't stop sinning. We know that. We acknowledge that in our own strength. Romans says that we are enslaved to sin. The storyline of the Bible confirms this. What happens immediately uh, after the creation story? You have the murder of Abel. You have the world flood. God looking down on humanity and saying, I wish I hadn't have done this. How did this this shouldn't have happened. And then uh, you have the discipline of Israel and the exile of Israel and all this. And so, uh, but God covers up Adam and Eve's nakedness. He covers up their shame. He sends an ark 
for Noah and his family. He delivers the people of Israel from Egypt. He brings them back after the exile and ultimately he sends the Messiah to redeem us from our brokenness, to remake us and to make us a new creation in him. That's the gospel. That's the power and the only way that anyone can be redeemed and to remove the badness and to have hope. And we praise him for that, don't we? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for redeeming us. And Muslims need to hear this story. And maybe there's a Muslim hearing this. Or maybe you're hearing this and you have uh, come out of a legalistic background. You know, Martin Luther compared Catholicism in some ways in his day to Islam. Very works-based righteousness. Follow these rules. Today, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me if you're tired. If you're tired of not measuring up, not being good enough. And he says, I died for you, for your sin, to redeem you. I rose from the dead to defeat sin and overcome it. Today, you've learned a little bit about Muslims, but there's a lot left unsaid. We're going to talk a little bit more tonight uh, about uh, who Muslims are and some, uh, some more of their beliefs, get a little deeper into that. Uh, we've learned a little bit about uh, Islam in America. We've learned that Muslims live here in Lancaster County, and we've learned God's heart for Muslims, that he loves them and he, has compa- he wants to have compassion on them and does have compassion on them. So the question is, what is God calling you to do? What does he want you to do today? Some of you, that may be go to the Muslim world. Some of you, that may be go to the people who are around here. But what we know is that God wants all of you to pray. Pray that he would cast out laborers into the field. Uh, Also, wanted to invite you guys. We have a free webinar coming up here with Rick Warren on October the 29th. You can sign up for that, crescentproject.org. And uh, also, if if you have any questions or you need anything, you're welcome uh, to email me or text me or whatever your favorite form of communication is. I just don't do Apple FaceTime because I hate Apple, but um, uh, that's okay. But let's, let's, uh, let's pray together. Thank you, guys. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of the harvest. We thank you that you love Muslims and you have compassion on them because they are harassed. And even those who are living a good life, who have uh, money and all these things, who aren't coming from war-torn environments, Lord, they are broken people and they need you, just like we are broken, broken people without you. And Lord, I pray for Keystone. God, I just pray they would have compassion on Muslims as well, that they would see Muslims the way you see Muslims and that they would pray for more laborers to go out into the field, to the harvest field, and that, Lord, you would send some of them to go. And that you would open the door for them to do that. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Father, use, uh, use our brother tonight to encourage and challenge our hearts. And to speak on your behalf. I pray that we would have uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. That we would not be dull like the disciples in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I go back up there. Okay, I'm just making sure. Good evening. Glad a few of you came back and uh, probably have some folks watching online here. So we're going to go back into a little bit more detail of talking to Muslims. Uh, uh, Hopefully you got a lot out of this morning. Uh, But let's just say you went to Target 
and you met a Syrian family when you were there. Uh, as you get to know the Syrian family, you're going to quickly find out that that Syrian family has a different worldview and understanding of life uh, than your own. And the same is true for every Muslim you meet, no matter where they came from, even if they grew up here in the States, there's a different worldview. Uh, And let's just say this lady, uh, the mom's name is Aisha. And Aisha comes up and says to you, says, uh, well, let's just say this took place in the course of conversation. It wouldn't just be random asking this. Uh, But she may say something like this, like, as a Christian, why do you worship, why do you worship Mary? Well, you might be taken back and be like, wait, wait, what? What are you talking about? What, why do you think, you know, you might be thinking, why do I, why do you think I worship Mary? Was it the, the Mary bumper sticker that I had on my car? Was it the WWMD bracelet? Like what would Mary, what would Mary do? Uh, yeah, so that was an old one, WWJD. I don't know if you remember that one or not. Uh, but anyway, what, make, what, what, makes you, what, what makes you think that I worship Mary? Um, and you may uh, have a follow-up question, and, and uh, she may say, well, all, all Christians worship Mary. She's part of the Trinity. Uh, that's a fact. Um, but again, we need to be asking the question, well, where does she get this information? Is she getting it from the Quran? Is she, is she getting it from her pastor who would be called the Imam? Uh, is she getting it from her grandfather? Uh, could it be that she's confusing Catholicism with Protestant Christianity? Uh, although I would say most Catholics would uh, claim they do not worship Mary. They may vener- venerate her. Uh, and at Crescent Project, there's a lot of things we can help you with as far as talking to Muslims. Uh, a lot of questions we can help you answer. But there's going to be some questions we just can't help you with. Uh, not every question that a Muslim asks and everything they say to you is going to be a standard uh, reply. You can go through our Bridges study. That will help tremendously. Uh, but sometimes we have to go deeper. We have to train ourselves to be able to understand who we're talking to and how to interact with them and to apply the gospel to particular situations uh, because these questions are arising out of a a Muslim's mind and a heart uh, and uh, their experiences. Uh, James Sire uh, says this about a worldview. Let's see if I can get my slides here. Uh, Oh, oh, there's the lady at Target. Sorry, missed that part. Uh, So as far as the uh, worldview, James Sire says this. He says, a worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true or partially true or entirely false, which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently about the basic constitution of reality. And that provides the foundation which we live and move and have our being. Simplistically, a worldview is how we see things, is how we look at life. And culture, that our culture, the culture of Lancaster County has formed your worldview, and then your worldview has informed uh, the, and shaped the culture. And we, along with our Muslim friends, we see the world in a certain way. They see the world in a certain way. But our job is to get into the heart of the Muslim worldview. If we're talking to a Muslim, we need to get into what are they, how are they, seeing things? How are they looking at things? Um, and, you know, I, I would love to, to sit up here and, and, and say, you know, hey, 
Guys, Islam is very simple. Muslims are very simple. Uh, be encouraged. Go and uh, just share the gospel with them. Get to know them. And in a way, you really don't have to know that much about Islam to be able to engage Muslims with the gospel. So be encouraged, really, and, and step out in a baby step. But also, at the same time, there is an iceberg here, right? There's, there's something we're just barely touching on, and underneath the surface is a whole uh, understanding of life that we have to tap into uh, and get into. And for me, what motivates me is if uh, you tell me this is something that's very interesting, but yet yeah, this is just the tip of it, and there's so much more to explore, so many more things to know. That's what motivates me to learn about Muslims and about the Muslim world. And right now, my goal is to kind of introduce you into this new world of Islam and Muslims. And it is my heart that some of you will become lifelong learners of these people and what they believe and befriend them and ultimately be an ambassador of Christ. And of course, there's going to be many things along the way as, as you learn about Muslims that are going to be strange and unfamiliar to you. Um, and, but uh, what drives us on is to truly love these people and understand who they are. And so with that said, we're going to go through some of these uh, beliefs that Muslims have and some of the things they hold that are taught by Islam. And a good place to start is uh, with Muhammad. And so who is Muhammad and why is Muhammad important to Muslims? Well, we can say that Muhammad is the founder of Islam. Uh, he was born in 570 AD. He died in 622 AD. Uh, he started to receive what he believed were revelations from the angel Gabriel while he was meditating in a cave. And while Islam officially started with Muhammad, as I, I think I mentioned this morning, Islam is, it doesn't just think it just came on the scene, but it's continuing the previous storyline. It's continuing the previous, revel, uh, the storyline of the previous revelation of the, of the Bible and of the Old Testament. So the same God that Muhammad believed was speaking to him is the same God he believed uh, came to the Jews and also to uh, the Christians. And of course, um, there's a term that's used sometimes, uh, it's called Abrahamic faith. Uh, that's where that term kind of comes from. Muslims are claiming to be part of the same faith uh, as Abraham. And, uh, of course, uh, he, he uh, believed, uh, he, you know, he, he claimed to receive words from Allah. And so these words uh, were taken together and put together, and that's called the Quran. And that is the holiest book of Islam. Uh, but it's important to remember that uh, in Islam, the Quran is not the only book that they use for authority. So there are other holy books as well. Actually, there's a whole collection of holy books that are called the Hadith. Uh, and the Hadith are defining and uh, illustrating what Muhammad did in his life, how the choices that he made, um, why he did things a certain way. Now, these Hadith, I mean, there's literally thousands of these things. I mean, and, they, and Muslims debate uh, this one may be authoritative. This one may not be authoritative. Uh, but it's just good to know that the Quran is not the only thing they go to to explain uh, what they believe in uh, Islam. But as far as Muhammad is concerned, every Muslim wants to be like Muhammad. Because Muhammad is the ultimate example of what it means to be a good Muslim. And so they want to be like Muhammad in a similar way, I would say to the way that we want to be like Jesus. We want to act like Jesus and do the things that he did. 
Uh, there's a Muslim Islamic leader, which we're going to talk a little bit about later, who just happens to live in Pennsylvania, two and a half uh, hours north of here. His name is Fethullah Gulen. He is a Turkish Islamic leader. He says this about Muhammad. He says, God's messenger is superior to all the other prophets. This could not be otherwise, for he was sent as a mercy to all the worlds. The religion he relayed includes all essential tenets of the previously revealed religions as well as everything necessary to solve all human problems until the last day. In contrast, all earlier prophets were sent to a certain people and for a limited time. So to understand the argument that that Muslims are giving here is that uh, Jesus went to the people of Israel. That's it. He's not a a prophet or to the whole world, okay? He's just for a particular people, whereas Muhammad is the superior prophet to all the peoples of, uh, of the earth and for all time. And of course, we would make the opposite claim with Jesus, right? We would say, well, actually, Jesus is the last prophet, and there's no other prophets that are needed after him, and he is superior to every other prophet, and he is God's ultimate revelation by which he revealed himself to us. Yet, as we talk about Muhammad, particularly with our Muslim friends, and especially new acquaintances who are Muslims, we must tread carefully because Muhammad, again, is somebody they really love and appreciate. So uh, we recommend at Crescent Project, don't say anything negative about Muhammad, especially early on until you have an established relationship and that person understands where you're coming from and uh, how you're going about talking about Muhammad. Uh, at the same time, I read a book recently uh, that is giving recommendations to Christians on how to interact with Muslims, and they use the word never when it says never say anything negative about Muhammad. I don't know how you are about never, but when I think about never, I think about never. You know, like never. I wouldn't say never. You know, I mean, you know, after things get established, I got some good friends in North Carolina. I've known some of them for years. I've said some negative things, questioned them about Muhammad because there's a rocky history there, especially when he is high and lifted up in in Muslims' eyes. And so the question is, one of the questions uh, that could be asked later on in the relationship is, what about about the the violence of Muhammad? What about jihad? What about those types of things? And um, that brings us on here to another uh, really uh, touchy kind of topic here in America, and that is the word uh, jihad. Uh, what's important to realize is that for most Muslims, jihad is interpreted as a very peaceful thing. Uh, and so it's translated as strive, to be striving to do something. And so uh, it could be a Muslim uh, academic person who is striving to uh, love uh, his neighbors or write an article uh, about why Islam is, uh, uh, solves the problems of humanity or something like that. That could be considered uh, jihad. And so uh, nothing to worry about there, I don't think, as far as from an uh, average Muslim that you're going to meet when they talk about jihad. And they, 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 they're going to talk about it as a very peaceful thing. Uh, with that said, if you look at the history of jihad, it's actually pretty violent. I mean, there, it's, it's used with warfare. And so Muslims did uh, do 
authorized jihad, especially in what they would claim defensive situations. Uh, but as we learned about the spread of Islam through from Arabia to Mesopotamia and Northern Africa over the course of 35 years, uh, jihad actually went on the offensive too. So it's not just a defensive thing. And with the violence and the uh, fragmentation of Islam in some ways, uh, two groups were produced uh, in history of Islam. Uh, one is called Sunnism, and the other one is called Shiism, and both are Muslims. Now, m- most of your Sunnis, uh, Sunnis are going to make up most Muslims. 90% of the Muslims that you meet are going to be Sunni. Uh, 10% approximately are going to be Shia. A lot of Shia live in Iran and in Iraq and come from that particular area. So if you meet an Iraqi or an Iranian uh, who is Muslim, there's a good chance they could be Shia. And uh, I remember uh, this kind of this conflict kind of continues between Sunni and Shia sometimes. And I remember talking to this Iraqi Shia, former Shia, I think, up in Massachusetts. And he was telling me about uh, this Shia and Sunni Muslim families living in this same apartment complex. And just for fun, you know, the Sunnis will just call the police on the Shia next door and say, hey, I think... I think they're beating their children. So the kids would, you know, the police would come over and there'd be a controversy. So sometimes even that controversy between these two groups spills over to America, although it's not uh, like warfare or anything like that. Uh, over the years, there have been various great Muslim empires that have colonized uh, the, the world. Two of the earliest ones, I mentioned one this morning, the Umayyads and then the Abbasids. Uh, and then the last greatest empire was something called the Ottoman Empire. They reigned for 700 years, very long time, from about 1300 all the way to 1923 when the Republic of Turkey was established. And the Republic of Turkey actually... Uh, uh, did away with the caliphate, which would be the leader of the Muslim world. Uh, And historically, the caliph is seen to be very important for Muslims as a leader of all the Muslims, uh, especially the Sunni Muslims. And um, when ISIS came along, I don't know if anybody kept up with this or not, but there was a guy named uh, al-Baghdadi. And al-Baghdadi claimed to be the caliph. He claimed to be the leader of the Muslim world. And so there was, that was the historical uh, history that goes kind of behind that. And Muslims remember these great Muslim empires in various ways. If you're talking to a Turk, he may be, uh, or he or she may be very proud of their Ottoman heritage and remember that kind of nostalgically saying, you know, I wish it was like that again. But some of them may be like, well, I'm glad it's over. I'm just glad, no, that, uh, that's no longer uh, happening. And the reason for that is because the West and Western ideas coming from Europe, Enlightenment ideas intersected with the Muslim world and changed the way Muslims had, uh, were thinking. And it challenged traditional Muslim values. And then something happened uh, after the Ottoman Empire fell. Uh, nation states were created. And so the Ottoman Empire literally ran from the Balkans, which is Bulgaria, is one of the countries there north of Turkey, and it ran all the way to northern Africa. Now, what was used to be the Ottoman Empire is composed of many different countries like Bulgaria, Turkey, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, and many Muslims like Americans are very nationalistic. They're very, uh, they love their country that they came from. And if they're American, they may be very nationalistic for America and for whatever country uh, that they came from. Uh, But many of these countries 
have been plagued by war. We talked to you a little bit about that this morning, and which is why a lot of, or authoritarian governments, which is why a lot of Muslims have come to America to seek refuge and have uh, freedom. If you meet a Muslim, I'd encourage you, ask where they're from. You know, what country are you from? What's your heritage? What brought you here uh, to America? Find out a little bit about them. And one of the things, the reason I, I brought up some of this history here is to help you understand that not all Muslims are the same. Uh, Islam is very diverse because of the geography, the span, you have these different groups. Not every Muslim can be lumped into the same category, just like well, we can't be lumped into the same, same category as Christians. If somebody comes up to me and calls me a Catholic, I'm going to blow. what? So, right, we distinguish ourselves. Same thing with Muslims. Uh, they have different understanding of politics, ethics, uh, cultural traditions. And this is very important for us because sometimes as Christians and Christian writers and political writers, they use the term Islam very loosely. And they're like, oh, this is the way Muslims are. Oh, really? Well, which Muslims are we talking about? What kind of Islam are we talking about? Where they're radical. Well, very few Muslims are actually radical. And so, but that it's present. I'm not going to say it's not there, but it's just something to keep in mind. We can't just throw every Muslim into the same category. And as these nation states kind of arose in the Middle East, uh, modernization was taking place and something else called westernization, which is the West ideas kind of spreading throughout the Muslim world. And uh, a lot of Muslims were wondering, well, why did these great Muslim empires fall? Why did all this, uh, these good times that the Muslims were having just go away and just disappear? Because these nation states fragmented these great empires. And uh, some of them started to ask um, uh, other questions like, well, is Allah chastising us because we didn't live out Islam the way that we should? Did we do something wrong? Uh, and of course, this westernization process brought in new ideas that challenged traditional Islamic values. You had Christianity that came in. Uh, you had atheism. You had all these other things. And, and there's a conflict that starts to happen in a Muslim's mind. Like, how do I, how do I be true to my values and live in this culture? Same thing for Christians, right? We have to figure out how in the world do we love homosexual people and how do we talk about homosexuality in our culture? So there's things we have to think through and there's things that Muslims had to think through as well. And one of these leaders who's very well known for Muslims in the Muslim world as a reformer is Jamal al-Din al-Afghani. Uh, he was from Afghanistan and he went around talking to Muslims, this, that, and the other. Uh, and in, in the early 1900s, some, uh, some of these Islamic movements arose to kind of respond to Western ideas and, and trying to hold on to these traditional Islamic ideas at the same time. And one of those movements was the Muslim Brotherhood. So anybody ever heard of them? Muslim brother, yeah. So a um, lot, of, lot of things out there on the internet about Muslim Brotherhood, what they're doing and all this. But one of the things you need to remember is they are trying to answer for Muslims, how can a Muslim be faithful in a modern society and to uh, 
you know, do what Allah has called them to do. Uh, another movement that arose is uh, called the Nur movement based off of this older gentleman here with the head covering, Said Nursi. He was a Kurd, lived in Turkey. He saw the fall of the Ottoman Empire. He was very devastated. He saw the rise of the Republic of Turkey, which was very secular. And so that, that really had an impact on the way he taught Muslims. And he tried to answer some of these Western ideas. And so after Nursi died in 1960, another movement came out of the Nur movement and another leader uh, uh, called the Gulen movement, the Gulen movement, uh, with a guy named Fathula Gulen. Now, I realize I'm probably talking uh, a foreign language right now to some of you. But the reason I'm telling you all this is because we're in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is very important for the Gulen movement because their leader lives here. He lives in Sailorsburg on a 26-acre property, uh, and uh, there is a, probably a center right near here in Leola called the Rose Foundation that is part of this movement. Uh, not only that, but two and a half hours northeast of here is the greatest concentration of Turkish people in the United States. So you can drive there. It's in Patterson, New Jersey. So this is the reason I'm bringing all these things up. Uh, another reason is, is that the Gulenists are, are an example of what a modern Muslim is and the way that Muslims are trying to integrate into Western society and into uh, America and truly hold to their traditional Islamic values. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about them. Uh, as best we can tell, they're a very peaceful me- movement uh, of people. There's some debate on that. Uh, but as far as all my interactions have been very peaceful, uh, there's, uh, that's part of their theology and the things that they claim to uh, believe. And as a church, if you guys decided to focus on a particular Muslim group, I would recommend the Turkish people just because of the proximity you have to the greatest concentration of Turks in the United States. Um, and... I uh, just want to uh, go through some um, beliefs that uh, Muslims have. I would say modern Muslims, kind of like the Gulenists here. Uh, all Muslims have to adhere to five pillars. A pillar is like a, a ritual, something you have to do. To be a Christian in this church, I'm, well, I'm, I may be overstepping, but I'm pretty sure you have to be baptized to be a Christian here, I'm pretty sure. Yeah? No? <laughs> shaking his head. In my church, you have to get baptized. So, uh, you know, but we have rituals that we do, right? That's part of being a Christian. We believe in Jesus, but then we do something to show that we believe in Jesus. And so one of the pillars of Islam that uh, the Gulenists believe and all, all Muslims believe is uh, called the shahada or the confession of faith. And this is simply that you have to believe as a Muslim uh, that there's only one God and that Muhammad is his prophet. Notice again the importance of Muhammad because if you take Muhammad out of this confession then you're not a Muslim. You got to have both. You got to believe in Muhammad. You got to believe in uh, Allah, these things are, uh, these two are linked together and you had to confess this. Uh, so very, very important in Islam. Second pillar here is the salat or prayer. 
Uh, Muslims have to pray a ritual prayer five times daily. That is commanded in their religion. Uh, They face towards Mecca, which is a very holy city. And uh, it's very ritualistic in my mind because uh, it's not like when we go and we pray, we're we're talking to God. We're in a relationship. We're talking to our Father. Uh, They're doing it as best I can tell, but it's because they they have to do it. Uh, Now, that's not to say that some modern Muslims aren't picking up on Christian practices and kind of, uh, kind of blending in with the, with the America, I would say. I saw a, a guy who led a Quran story, uh, study on Zoom the other day, and at the end, he, he just like prayed like we would pray, you know. And I, was, I found that interesting. Like, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. It doesn't seem like that's probably very traditional, but it's something that Muslims are doing. So prayer is very important, and there's all kinds of stuff you can learn about this. It has to be done in a certain way. You got to, I mean, everything about it, is, it has to be to a T to count. And if you do the wrong thing, it doesn't count. So uh, that's that. What's the third one? Zakat or charity. So Muslims believe in giving. Uh, and every year, Muslims must give a certain percentage of uh, their money to give. Some of this goes to the poor for the Gulenis community. Uh, the building that they have in Leola uh, it may have been funded by uh, people who gave to zak- their zakat, z- zakat or their charity. And so it's very possible that uh, they use that money uh, for that building. On the other hand, the Gulenists, uh, it's interesting, sometimes use your money. <laughs> You're like, what, what do we mean? Well, tax pay, pay, taxpayers' money, because they also are uh, leading, uh, they, I guess what's the best way to say this? They run in 143 documented charter schools in the United States with our taxpayer dollars. Uh, so it's been under an investigation. There's all kinds of stuff that's happened, but it's legal. It's completely legal. So just something uh, to keep in mind uh, there with the Gulenists. Here's another uh, point that Muslims uh, have to adhere to is um, uh, fasting during Ramadan. So anybody heard of Ramadan? Yeah, very important for Muslims, and you got to fast every year, uh, and it's according to the lunar calendar, calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. So what that means is it moves <laughs> every year. It could be it could be in the summer, it could be in the winter, and and Muslims don't like it when it's in the summer because you can't you know eat and drink. So it's better if it takes place in the uh, in the winter time. Um, and something to remember is that Muslims can eat at nighttime. So when we lived in the Middle East. Uh, er, er, you know, after the sun goes down, after the, the fast breaks and everybody, everybody starts partying. I mean, it's, all the lights are on throughout the city. They're eating. They're having a wonderful time. They call it the iftar. And so if you ever get invited to one of these dinners, I encourage you to go. I mean, if your conscience will let you. And just kind of get to know people. Love, uh, love the people who are there. Uh, the Gulenist here in, in America, they often use these iftar dinners during Ramadan when it's not COVID times as a form of outreach to bring in the community uh, to uh, show them what Islam is all about. So I encourage you to, to go up there to Leola and form a, a relationship. The fifth pillar here is the Hajj or the pilgrimage. Uh, every Muslim should make the Hajj at least one time in their life. Uh, that's the, the expectation, but there's some, you know, allowances if you're handicapped in some way or you just don't have the money, uh, but it's the best thing if you can go. Uh, what's interesting is not, uh, not all Muslims go, and even if you look at history, uh, the, the sultans, which would have been the leader of the Islamic Empire in the Ottoman Empire, 
like I think maybe one went the whole, you know, 700 years. So apparently there's an exception sometimes to going on this. But nevertheless, it's very important for Muslims uh, to go to Mecca. And what they do, if you can see in that picture there, uh, they go around that, that it's called the Kaaba. It's like a black tent enclosed mat. But what's important is in there is a, is a black stone. It's thought to be a meteorite. Uh, but it's very holy in Islam. And even before Islam, it was uh, part of the Arabian uh, religions that were kind of local there. So that's very important in Islam as well. Uh, there are some beliefs. Uh, we're going to try to do some question and answer time at the end. So if you have some questions, be thinking about those. So I might, I might run through a couple of these beliefs, uh, but won't spend too much time. Uh, Muslims had to believe in God. You know, we already talked about that. Uh, sometimes theologically, uh, there is uh, a debate even among Christians. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Okay. So the way I look at this is I got a brother. His name is Noah. Great looking guy because he looks like me. No, I'm just kidding. But really, we're like each other. And uh, he has the same mama and daddy. Uh, We have the same last name. We both have beautiful wives. We both have four children. But when it comes down to it, Noah and I, we're not so much alike in some ways. I like sweet tea. Now, I know you guys don't know what sweet tea is up here, do you? We went into the simple at Quidoba or something earlier, and they had tea. And it was turned upside down, you know, that you couldn't have any because I guess COVID or something. I don't know. And my son's like, I want some tea. I'm like, no, you don't. No, nah, that's nasty. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, my brother doesn't like sweet tea. And when it comes down to it, he's got a different blood type. He's got a different DNA. He's a different guy. And when it comes down to does the same, is the same God of Islam, is the God of Islam and the God of Christianity the same God? Uh, can we call God Allah? Sure, we can call God Allah. A lot of Arabic Christians call God Allah. The question is, who is Allah? What is his character like? And uh, Crescent Project and myself would argue that the character of Allah the, 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 uh, from an Islamic perspective and the character of God from a Christian perspective perspective are different. And so that's just something uh, to be aware of. Muslims have to believe in God. They also have to uh, believe in um, angels. So that's very, very important. Uh, And along with that, there's these really interesting half angel, half demon beings. They call them jinn. And even to say the word around some, you know, devout Muslims, say jinn. Is there any jinn? They kind of get the EBGBs because jinn are kind of, they can hurt you. They can do bad things to you. Uh, There's this whole uh, version of Islam called folk Islam that's not official. It's not orthodox, but lots of Muslims practice this. And so they're kind of worried about, hey, uh, you know, the way the pastor's looking at me right now, I could give me the, he's giving the evil eye to me, could make me sick. And here in the West, we look at some of this stuff, they're like, that's just a bunch of bogus. You know, like germs make you sick. We know this. But it's interesting because I think there's a greater, uh, there's a greater, um, comparison between the biblical worldview, especially in the New Testament there, and the way Muslims think about the spiritual world than the way that we as Westerners think about the spiritual world. Because when you go into Ephesians, there's a war going on, isn't there? There's, there's demons, there's God, and it's taking place in the heavenly places, which just so happens to be somewhere right here. Somewhere right here in our midst, this stuff is happening all the time. I was taking a plane ride uh, in uh, the Middle East, and there was this baby crying. 
And I think the, the, the family was thinking the, the, you know, the djinn were getting the baby and making them cry. And so they took this little amulet, which is like a little prayer bead that they use, looks almost like a rosary. And they started waving around that baby's head to kind of keep the djinn away. And so lots of Muslims are scared of evil spirits and all these things. And you know, the good news is, is that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. So we can preach that. We can tell Muslims. That's why Jesus came. He came to destroy these evil things. In addition to the angels, uh, Muslims had to believe in the prophets. We talked a little bit about uh, Muhammad. Of course, they they would uh, incorporate a lot of the other biblical prophets. Uh, You got Adam and Noah. uh, And, you know, they're Islamicized, but they're there. And they're a bridge that we can use to talk to Muslims about. I encourage you to take the bridges study. You can learn more about that. Uh, And then uh, they believe in the books. Uh, I mentioned this morning that Muslims do see the Old Testament and the New Testament as holy, as sent from God. It says that in the Quran, they were sent down by God. And so they're holy. Now, Muslims believe they've been changed. But if you want to give a Muslim a Bible, they're going to take it. They're going to accept it because it's holy in their tradition. What's What's the iPhone up to now? What, what number is it? Is it 11? Is it 11 or something like that? I don't do iPhones. So, 12? 15? Okay. If you got an iPhone 12, and I came up to you and say, look, check this out. I got an iPhone 5. It's the bomb. I'll trade you. What are you going to tell me? You're going to be like, no, I don't need that. I got the best of the best. I don't need that old phone. Same thing with Muslims. They got the best of the best in their mind. I have the final revelation. I have the Quran. Why do I need to go back to the old scriptures? So yes, it's holy in their tradition, but it's irrelevant for them. And so that's something to keep in mind talking to our Muslim friends. And we have an answer for that in the Bridges study on uh, defending the Bible, that it hasn't been corrupted. I encourage you to go through that. Uh, And then the last thing that Muslims believe is judgment day. And so on the last day, there's going to be scales. And each one of those scales, you're going to be weighted on, you're going to put your good deeds in one, you're not going to do it, somebody's going to do it, and uh, good deeds here, bad deeds there, and if it doesn't weigh more on the good deed side, things aren't going to go very well for you. And so again, there's not a lot of hope, even in death, for Muslims. Um, Okay, uh, I want to talk about two things with the Gulenist community, uh, with the Muslims there in Leola, and other Muslims in general, and that is community and living an upright life. This is very important for Muslims. Here at Keystone, you're probably here because you love Jesus and because you want to know more about the Bible. And uh, you probably love some of these people in this room, I hope. Uh, hopefully you know some of these people. And uh, probably sometimes they, they encourage you when things are going uh, hard. And sometimes they may admonish you for something. Uh, but that's part of living in community. And the same thing is true for Muslims, particularly for the Gulenist Muslims. Uh, they live in community. They live together. Uh, it's very important for them to carry out rituals together. And uh, I ha- uh, they're very loving. Uh, I have a friend of mine, I just recently moved and he texted me and he's like, hey, can I help you move? Very caring uh, guy. Uh, In many of these COVID times, they may not be meeting in the building as they normally do, uh, but they're doing it over Zoom. They're doing, uh, having these meetings over Zoom and talking and this, that, and the other. Uh, And I would encourage you again to, to visit some of these community centers, some of these mosques. There's three of them here. And go and get to know people. Don't participate. Don't 
Don't bow down. <laughs> if you do that, I'm coming after you. But just go and be an observer. You can tell them, hey, I'm Christian. I'm from Keystone, whatever. I just want to watch. And afterwards, when everybody starts talking, go and talk to people and get to know who they are. And then you may could just go get coffee uh, afterwards, and you may not have to go to the mosque again. Uh, so uh, that's just an idea that you can do. Um, in general, in order to reach Muslims with the gospel, you have to be able to immerse yourself in the culture. You have to know their community. You have to know who they are and what they believe. Tim Keller says this, if we are going to enter into whatever culture we are trying to reach, we have to immerse ourselves in its questions, its answers, its beliefs, its rituals, seeking to understand uh, so that we can provide biblical answers to that culture. Paul Hebert, an anthropologist, says this, we have to exegete the culture. And in order to understand Muslims, we have to get in their lives and provide answers. You may tell me, I don't have time for that. I don't, that's going to take a lot of time. Yeah, it is going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of time talking to Muslims, reading about Muslims, understanding who they are. And I don't have time to reach all the, Muslim, all the people groups of the world either. But again, God's calling some of you to do that. I believe that. And if he's calling you to do that, you need to do what's necessary to get the job done. In my immersion in the Turkish culture, uh, I found in community that people hold each other accountable to live an upright life. And they do this by reading the Quran. They read the Hadith Hadith literature. They read other Islamic books. Uh, And recently, I was part of a Zoom study where they were reading this book about the purification of the heart. In other words, hey, I do bad things. How can I do good things and get rid of those bad things in my life? And there's this book that we read, and here was a little section that we read that night. And it says this. The imam says next that the worst thing a person can do, worst things a person can do are those acts that harden the heart. One of them is speaking a lot without mentioning God. Jesus warned, do not sit in a gathering without mentioning God. For a gathering in which God is not mentioned will harden the heart. The more the tongue is occupied in remembering God, the softer the heart becomes, imbued with compassion, mercy, and love. Well, I'm the only Christian in the group, and so they look over at me and they say, well, tell us about this Jesus saying. And I'm thinking, hmm, I don't think this is Jesus of the Bible. You know, like I'm thinking, I'm not, I'm not sure, guys. It sounds kind of Islamic to me, kind of like an Islamic statement that Jesus uh, may have said. And so um, I said, well, I, I was going to ask you the same question, but here's my two cents. I think that this text highlights a core distinction between Islam and Christian teaching regarding the purification of the heart. Because in Islam, this text is claiming that purification begins outside of a person. And in this case, a person's speech. When it comes to a person, then it comes into a person to soften the heart, which then somehow produces compassion, mercy, and love. Whereas in Christianity, Jesus taught that the heart must be internally rebirthed. And then it will produce external acts of good things and like compassion and mercy and love. And so it moves from the inside and goes out, not the opposite from the outside going in. Galatians would call this the the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says another, another way, he says the good tree brings forth what? Good fruit. The bad tree brings forth bad fruit. 
This Islamic teaching is claiming that somehow external bad fruit on a tree can somehow go into the root of the tree and purify it and make it clean and good. As far as I know, biologically, this isn't possible, and it's not possible spiritually either. Um, Now, how did I know to answer these Turkish Muslims this way? Is it because I'm a scholar in Islam? Is it because I'm just a great thinker? No, it's because I read my Bible. And when I see something that's different than what Jesus really claimed, I'm looking at that and asking, no, that's, or saying, that's not what Jesus says in the Bible. It's the opposite. And so the same is true for you. If you read your Bible, if you spend time with Jesus, if you're under the teaching of, uh, of this church, you, when you talk to Muslims, you're going to know what's true, and you can compare and contrast what Muslims are saying and interact in their life. In other words, you can exegete their culture. You can exegete their beliefs and understand their worldview and then bring the gospel into that. There's no standard process for doing that, but that's something you have to do in every moment that you spend with Muslims. Tim Keller also says this, after we immerse ourselves in the culture, sometimes we have to confront it. And I just gave an example of that. Um, and uh, sometimes we, we're going to see things that are similarities that we hold with Muslims. Sometimes we're, there's going to be differences, and we have to confront those things. But the thing is, if you're really immersing yourself in friendship and in the culture, they're going to respect you. And they're going to know you're for real and that you care. And so when you come to the table as someone who knows uh, uh, and what they're about and the things that they believe, they're going to listen to what you have to say. And so uh, part of that is um, confronting the culture. The other thing Keller says here is we need to appeal to the culture, appeal to the culture. And so when it comes to my Turkish friends, do they really want their heart to be pure? Do you think they really struggle with feeling shame or guilty for the things that they do wrong in their life? I think they do. And I think they're trying to find a way to get rid of that bad stuff, get rid of that shame for the things that they're doing. I think they really want to be good. There's that true desire. But they're going about it in a way that is not going to ever cleanse their conscience. And it's never going to produce what they're looking for. And so as we appeal to the culture, appeal to the Muslim culture, we are going to meet the desire of what the Muslims are seeking in that moment through the gospel because Jesus does cleanse the heart. His blood washes away the sin and then he implants himself, the Holy Spirit, inside of the believer to produce the, the fruit that we all long for. But it's God at work in us. And so my Turkish Muslim friends, they want that. And that's what they ultimately want. And it's ultimately uh, satisfied in the gospel. And so um, uh, we're going to move on to some question time here in just a minute. I'm going to conclude here, though, and just give you some really practical ways that you can be involved in Muslims' lives. Uh, One of the things I've already mentioned, and that's going to these local mosques. There's, again, the screenshot there. I don't know if these will be available later or not, but if you need these addresses, you can email me or call me. I'll be glad to to look those up for you. Uh, The other thing is, I mentioned this morning as well too, is forming an outreach group or a prayer group. Somebody needs to go out and find out where Muslims live here in Lancaster County. Where do they work? What stores do they own? Uh, What occupations are they part of? 
and put together some kind of little map that says, okay, this is where Syrians are. This is where uh, Yemenis people are. I mentioned this morning, all the tobacco and vape shops in my area are owned by people from Yemen. So it'd be great to have somebody doing that up here. Another thing I would recommend you doing is taking a mission trip or a day trip uh, with a couple other Christians and going up to Patterson, New Jersey, with the aim of getting to know Turkish people and to share Jesus with them. Look at that. What's it say? Two hours, 27 minutes. I don't know if that's accurate when it comes to getting close to New York, but um, this is something that's very possible for you guys to be able to do uh, such a thing. And for those of you who are homebodies who may be watching us on the camera or for others who are concerned about COVID and moving around, listen, we got a great ministry for you at Crescent Project. It's called Embassy. And Embassy helps you reach anybody, any Muslim people group in the world right from your computer, right in your PJs. No problem. Don't have to worry about COVID there. And so I didn't recommend you get on the Crescent Project website, look that up. Uh, our good friends will, uh, who run this ministry will help train you. How do you move around in these social tra- chat rooms and get to know people? Sometimes uh, Christians are concerned about well, safety. Well, what if I talk to the wrong person, the wrong Muslim, and they come and get me? Well, we're, we're going to help you understand how do you interact online? What's the, what's the best way to go about that? So I encourage you to check that out uh, as well. And so as I said at the beginning here, my desire is to kind of introduce you. There's no way I can give you everything to know about Muslims in, in one sitting. But I want to introduce you to this new world and encourage you and challenge you to keep learning, to keep underst- uh, trying to understand these people. And guess what? The best way to do that is to meet a Muslim and to talk with them personally about what they believe. And so I challenge you to, to pray and ask Lord to lead you to someone and to open uh, an opportunity. I think in Hershey, we saw, we saw some Muslims. I haven't seen any yet in my going around in town here, but I'm sure there are people here. And you have a Tanger outlet, by the way. <laughs> a Tanger outlet at my, uh, where I live, uh, there's tons of Muslims. If you have kids, go to the playground. It, it'd be so easy for you. So uh, I think we may, I don't know if we still have, do we have still have time for a couple of questions? Um, yeah. Yeah, if you want to uh, just raise your hand, I'll bring the microphone around to you so that people go online can hear as well. I'm coming. Um, this may be a misconception. Maybe you can help me. Uh-huh. I'm a woman. Um, how would I be perceived or accepted in a mosque with men? And how would I engage even in a, like, Getty Mart or somewhere where it's all men? And mm-hmm. what does that look like for me? Is that is that disrespectful? Is that... Mm-hmm. No, 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 it's not disrespectful, but I was saying, I understand the question. So uh, the good news is that it's very easy as a woman. Actually, for you, it's much easier uh, because men and women traditionally in Islam separate in social context. Uh, they do the same thing in the mosque. They're going to put the women in a certain section. They're going to put the men in a certain section. So when you, if... 
first off, I wouldn't recommend you go alone. I'd recommend you to go with others, preferably people who have gone through our Bridges study. Uh, and, uh, but go together with other women and engage with the women who are there. Uh, and, uh, but yes, socially, you'll, you would have no problem engaging with women. For instance, shopping. Oh, my goodness. I see Muslims everywhere shopping. I mean, where I live. And, and it's, it's just kind of an awkward thing. Like, you know, unless my wife is like right beside me and you got two young ladies and I'm like, hey, you know, I mean, like it's weird, you know, for you, it's no problem. My wife is great at this. If she's listening right now, she, she is great. I mean, she just goes up and she's, I don't know how it happens as a woman. I really don't. I, you know, you just, something happens. You're sitting there and you're on the same aisle and it's like, yeah, I love that too. Oh girl, I love your earrings. Oh my, they are so pretty, right? I can't say stuff like that. Hey dude, man, I like your pants. It doesn't work like that. For a woman, it's easy to strike up a conversation. So, yeah, use your personality the way God has gifted you in the grocery store, wherever you are, and put yourself near that person. If you, it's really, and that's the other thing. It's easy to identify. Some of the struggles I've had that Christians have had as I've talked to them about reaching Muslims, they're like, well, how can I tell if the guy's a Muslim? If he's tan-skinned? I mean, what, how, how do you figure that out? I'm like, well, it's just kind of hard. I mean, just you have to talk to them. For a, mother, uh, for a woman, it's so easy. She's wearing a head covering. I mean, you might have some Greek Orthodox running around, you know, but more than likely it's a Muslim. And so uh, I, I always say uh, it's easier for you uh, than it is for a man. Uh, and the other thing is there's a lot of training and resources out there. Uh, we have some stuff on our website for women ministering to women. A lot of women have written books on reaching Muslims. Uh, I'd be glad to recommend some of that if you, you email me here. Glad to, glad to help you with that. Thank you. Uh oh, cameraman. Can't see him. I have a question. Um, I know you talked about wanting to establish a relationship. Yeah. Uh, what about situations where you really don't have, you know, it's going to be a one minute at the most. You're in line at the grocery store and you'll likely never see them again. Yeah, that's great. Um, I would, uh, I think that that's a good point. Uh, sometimes lifestyle evangelism or relationship evangelism is overemphasized. I think, especially <clears throat> from a younger generation, I'm, I'm starting to, to be like middle-aged. I don't know where I am, uh, but I've noticed I'm getting old and there's people who are young and I hear these young people are like, I want to build a relationship before I tell people about Jesus. No, you don't have to do that. Paul didn't do that, right? The apostle Paul. Sometimes you just need to tell people in the moment how the Spirit's leading, but yeah, you could share the gospel in a moment if you're bold. Uh, but one of the things I would do in a moment, if you can, is say, hey, look, uh, have you read the Bible? Do you have a Bible? Did you know you can download it on this little square box right here and get it right now on your phone in your language? Because the Bible app has all these different languages. So yeah, if you're in the moment and you don't have a lot of time, the best thing you could do is get a Bible uh, to that person. And if you're, again, uh, you're the type of person who can just share the gospel right in the moment, I would share the gospel in the moment and give them your email or try to find, establish some kind of contact for later on. Because that's the wonderful thing about our world, isn't it? I mean, now you can meet somebody in three seconds and be their friend for the next four years, even if they live in another country because of social media. All they have to have is your name and they can look you up on Facebook or whatever, you know. So yeah, that's what I'd do. By the way, Keith, you got a squeaky spot right here. Been stepping on it quite a bit. <laughs> so um, you said that Muslims 
view scripture as being corrupt. Is there like a book that they think is like uncorrupt or like the Bible, a version of the Bible that's uncorrupt? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, as far as I know, there is not a translation of the Bible that they would think is uh, uncorrupted. Uh, because if it's any kind of real translation that Christians are producing or it's been passed down through history, uh, they're going to say it's been corrupted. And the, real, <laughs> the reason for that, it's interesting if you look back in history, uh, Muslims initially didn't say the Bible was corrupt because it's kind of a weird argument the, because the Quran confirms the previous scriptures. And so uh, it wasn't until a guy named, I think, uh, Ibn Hazim came along who was kind of looking at the Bible. Actually, I think maybe he was a uh, Christian and he became a Muslim. And he's like, wait a minute here. The Bible says this. The Quran says this. this. There's a lo- logical fallacy here. They both can't be consistent. So essentially he said, well, the Bible has to be wrong. Something, it must have been corrupted because the Quran is the ultimate revelation. So it became more of a logical argument. Uh, but if you go back in history, uh, we have uh, the Codex Sinaiticus manuscript from uh, 325 AD. This has the whole Bible in there. Uh, we have a little uh, papyrus from, uh, I think, 100 AD. Maybe it's called the... Ooh, P52, I think, uh, manuscript. And it has a little portion of John in there where Jesus is standing before Pilate. So we know that Jesus was a historical figure, and we know he was claiming to be uh, God. And so we have this back in history. We can c- confront these things and help our Muslim friends. But, yeah, as far as I know, I, I don't think so. Um, you know, like Thomas Jefferson had a, he, he had a Bible and a Quran, but he took all the miracles out. So maybe if there was one. Maybe they would just take all the stuff out about Jesus dying on the cross and being God, and that would be the, the version they would use. Um, you had mentioned that the Trinity is a, a topic that obviously is disputed between Christians and Muslims. Would you have any advice on how to spin the conversation when it does go to the Trinity? It kind of seems like that's, okay, conversation over. We just don't understand each other. Um, do you have any maybe ways to spin it back to something else or mm. have them easily understand it? Because it's even hard for me to understand in terms of, yeah. It's, Your pastor's yeah. got it figured out. He was boasting to me earlier, <laughs> preaching pastor here. He was like, yeah, I got the Trinity figured out. It's no problem. Uh, yeah, so, you know, there's a couple of, a couple of ways you can handle that. I mean, at Crescent Project, we're always going to encourage you to go straight to the gospel as much as possible. Uh, and so we want to get over some of these humps that Muslims are uh, saying or that are... Um, that really could be second, it's not a secondary issue, but let's say it's a secondary thing you can talk about later. Uh, and I, I put in that category is like, well, uh, who is, um, whose son did Abraham uh, go to sacrifice on the mountain? Was it Ishmael or was it Isaac? Well, I'm not going to get into an argument with a Muslim over that. It's not worth it. Let's just divert that issue and let's talk about Jesus. Who is Jesus? And so if you don't want to address the Trinity uh, question, yeah, go back to Jesus. You can change the subject practically. Uh, But if you really want to get, uh, you know, uh, pry into their uh, worldview a little bit more, uh, actually there is a doctrine in Islam that is just as complicated as the Trinity. And the way that Muslims explain it is, I don't know. Uh, And so, again... 
Muslim, this is, this is a lot of backdrop. I'm, I'm really opening a can of worms here, but I'm going to mention it. You can go back and research it. In Islam, God is one being and one person. He's Tawheed, they call it. So nothing can, can come alongside God. There can't be a partner to God, which is why Jesus being called God is, is shirk. It's a very bad, unforgivable sin. But what's interesting is that you have God and then you have the Quran. Now, the Quran is eternal. Wait a minute. I thought only God could be eternal and uncreated. So how is it, my friend, if you're talking to him, can the Quran be eternal and God be eternal, but nothing else eternal or godlike be existing alongside of Allah? How do you explain that? Now, I would say for the average Muslim, they probably can't, they probably not even heard of these controversies, but they came up, you know, one of these uh, Muslim theologians came up with a way to explain it. And it's it's some Arabic word. I can't, I'm not going to even try it to say it, but it's pretty much, I don't know. It's a mystery, but they both, we hold both of those things to be true. So same thing with the Trinity. This is what we believe because that's what the Bible teaches. How can you completely explain it? I don't know. Um, but that's just one theological way. You go to the relationships, you know, God is relational. I think the Trinity is a great way to explain the relationship of God and how he relates with humanity as well. I hope that helps you. I hope that wasn't too deep for you, really. I'm sorry. Uh, Thomas, my perception is that Muslim, the average Muslim on the street, though, does not know their doctrine well. Is that an accurate perception or is that? Incorrect. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, when we talk to the average Christian, do they know their doctrine? Uh, and so, yeah, probably not. But the thing is, is most Muslims are very culture. And cult, they're they're, they're uh, cultural uh, Muslims. And so they hold these deep doctrines, uh, even though they may have been passed down by their grandmother or from the imam. Uh, and so they may not know it, how the Bible got corrupted or, or why God is one and be able to explain that, but they are going to die for that doctrine. And so, uh, but yeah, I think talking theologically with the average Muslim is uh, not always the most helpful thing to do. Uh, if you go through the Bridges study, when it comes to answering the uh, accusation the Bible has been corrupted, we have three ways of doing that. One is theological, two is logical, and three is hi- like this historical way of using it. You're probably not going to bring history in or even the logical stuff with the, the average person, but they understand the theology. And so if you say, they say, well, the Bible's been corrupted, you can say something like Fwad would say in Arabic, the founder of Crescent Project, you say, astaghfirullah, God forbid. Step back like lightning's getting ready to strike him. How can you say that God it can't, didn't preserve his previous scriptures? I thought you believed that God is all-powerful. So they understand that from a common perspective, you know. So um, we have a, a new neighbor that is from Pakistan. Oh, good. It's really, really exciting. He's very, very nice, and he married uh, our friend. And um, we really want to show hospitality to him. Um, mm. Apparently, in Pakistan, hospitality is amazing. At least this is what they've told us. So yes. um, we have made friends with him, and we would like to maybe have, him o- have them over um, I am scared to death of offending him. Uh, kind of what you were saying as a woman, I figure, well, you married an American woman, so, mm. you know, I'm kind of safe there. Yeah. But, you know, a meal and... 
conversation. Um, I noticed he was very forward in explaining his religious background and wanting to, I mean, he was right there with it. Uh. Um, so I guess I'm a little nervous that we would feel compelled to be as forward as he is. And would that offend him, being that he's yeah. a guest? I don't know. It's just, we're just nervous. I'm nervous about it. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I understand. Uh, you know, it's funny, you know, Chapel Hill in, in North Carolina is this odd city that doesn't fit into North Carolina culture. And uh, it's so weird kind of being there. I work there. And oh, I kind of had that feeling too, you know, being around my coworkers like, oh, what if I talk about Jesus? And then people get mad, um, this, that, and the other. Uh, and it's because a lot of them were humanistic or atheistic or whatever. But with Muslims, religion is just a part of life. It, it, actually, Islam incorporates all of life. There's no dividing even political things or the, the way society functions. And for them, it's very, very natural. Uh, the reason he feels so comfortable talking to you about that and about his religion is because that's just natural for him. If he was in Pakistan, he'd do the same thing. I mean, it, if you're willing to, to bow down in front of a lot of people in public, then uh, you're not ashamed or doesn't concern you to talk about or, uh, religion. Uh, so as far as the offensive side, you know, I think uh, a lot of Muslims, all the Muslims I've met are very uh, accommodating. You know, they're going to know you don't understand uh, probably everything they believe. Just like I used the, the opening example I used tonight. You know, if I had a lady come up to me and say, why do you worship Mary? Well, I, I mean, that, I could take that offensively, right? I mean, like, I don't worship Mary. What are you talking about? Or I could say, well, this lady just doesn't know, right? She has no idea what I believe. And that's probably how he's going to view you. I mean, he's just like, if you say, if you did say something that's weird, but there is, uh, there is a blessing in not knowing sometimes, right? Because it gives you the innocent factor. Well, I didn't know. And tell me what you believe. Tell me about this. Oh, explain this to me. So it helps you as a learner, again, to understand their worldview, where they're coming from, what they believe. And so just take that humble perspective. And then once you do understand, and as you're in the process, in the process of understanding, then you can insert the gospel into that. Oh, so this is what you believe. Well, as a Christian, this is what we understand about God. This is what we believe. This is how sin is taken away. So, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel, I think sometimes it's more in our mind than it is in reality. So I think you're going to be okay. God, God's going to bless you in that. So we had, we had two questions come in from online, but the, oh, online. the stream just Great. went down, so they're not going to be able to see it. <laughs> uh, so I guess, I'll, and I actually don't have them in front of me anymore to ask. Uh, I know one of them was, um, they were asking about the, why is the black stone that you mentioned holy? Yes. Okay. So the black stone is holy uh, because it was holy in previous um, uh, religions in the Arabian Peninsula. So there was some uh, cultic worship around it, this, that, and the other. And so the history of, of, of what Muslims claimed happened is when Muhammad came on the receiving these revelations and he uh, grew up in Mecca, you know, he grew up around this this black stone and this, uh, uh, this Kaaba. And uh, there's a long story that goes with this. He got kicked out of town. He comes back into town with an army of people. And the first thing he does is he goes to the black stone, to the Kaaba, and he cleanses all the idols away from this holy stone. And, 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 and 
then that uh, process is, uh, that stone is then rededicated to Allah uh, as a holy, uh, a holy symbol uh, of Islam. And even going back further than that, I guess there is a claim to Abraham, that Abraham uh, went there and maybe, I don't know exactly what happened with Abraham. Maybe that was the place where he sacrificed or was going to sacrifice Ishmael, according to their perspective. So it does have a tie-in with Abraham, too. But it's where Muhammad went when he started Islam, essentially. Great. Thank you. I think think we're going to wrap up with that. And, uh, brother, thank you so much for ministering today. So grateful that you came up here. And you boys, man, way to suck it up. I did a good job. You, yeah, you, they did a good job. And I, just to encourage us, um, Thomas was talking about us seeking out Muslims. Now, four years ago when we did the Bridges Seminar here, I did a little research. and At that point, there were over 1,000 Muslims in Lancaster County, and there were over 1,000 Muslims in Chester County. And I doubt that the number has gone down. And so I think increasingly we are going to be exposed to them. They are going, their children are going to be in our schools and they'll be going to school with your children and we're going to increasingly see them be our neighbors. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity. God's bringing the people that need Jesus into our communities, into our, uh, into our neighborhoods and so forth. And we just want to be, we want to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. And uh, so encourage you uh, as you think about these, these dear folks uh, to be reminded God loves them and he wants to use us to love them as well. Thanks for being here tonight. Let me pray and we'll dismiss you, Father. Thank you for uh, Jesus and the hope that we have in him. And we want to share this hope with those around us uh, of all faiths and of no faith. And, uh, but we especially think tonight about these uh, dear people uh, the numbers of whom around the world, they say, will eclipse the Christian uh, numbers by, by 2050. And that's not far away. And we realize how pervasive, how aggressive, how uh, rapidly growing uh, this movement is. And we pray, Lord, that ultimately the truth would prevail. And that people who would be, people like this would be set free by the truth. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. God bless you. Good night.